Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Uh, last week, as we just sang about, and as we, um, as we talked about last week, we basically began to looking at uh, what the church is. Uh, Paul, in these first three chapters of Ephesians, is giving us some of the most amazing truths about God, about God's grace, about the things that He has blessed us with um, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we looked at Ephesians 1, we talked about our salvation that is given to us by God's grace. We don't earn it. It's a free gift given to us. We talked about the fact that we, can, that we are adopted, if we are Christians, adopted into His family. They were made children of God, were heirs to the kingdom of God, that um, we are lavished with his grace, that he, that he um, uh, redeems us uh, from our enslavement of sin and brings us into his kingdom. Uh, he gives us wisdom and insight to understand his word, to be able to understand his plan and his mystery or in his will and his mind. Uh, there was a bunch of things that Paul said that, that we're given as Christians and God grace gifts this stuff to us. Not because we're good enough, not because we earned it, not because we went to church, not because we prayed some prayer when we were five years old, but because what his son did on the cross through Jesus Christ, those who believe, uh, Paul said, who have faith uh, and who um, express that faith in their actions and love for others, those who have faith in Jesus Christ are blessed with these grace gifts and there's just an abundance of grace that God bestows upon his children, upon his people. And then we got to Ephesians 2, Paul kind of then takes the picture off of God, His goodness, His grace, His power, all these things, and He looks at us real quick. And He reminds the Ephesians. He says, remember what you were. And He says you were dead in your sins. You were um, walking according to the course of this world. You were under the empowerment of Satan, and you liked it. And you were actively engaged in these deeds, and you wanted to follow the lusts of your flesh and the desires of your mind. And by nature, our natural condition is that we were all under the wrath of God. We were children of wrath. And that's a, a bleak, dark, sad picture. But we got to start there because then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, and it comes back to his mercy and his grace and his love, he says, because God was great in mercy, uh, because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. He took us from dead, made us alive. He took us from being separated and brought us to himself and reconciled us to himself. He took us from being children of Satan and made us children of God, heirs to the kingdom of God. And all of these things are freely given to his children, not because they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because he loves them and because he lo- loves to lavish his free grace gifts upon all of his people. And it's awesome. And we got back to that point. And, and Paul even got to the point where he says, and by grace we've been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. And then he says, not as a result of our works, that no one may boast. We are created. We are God's creation, created in Jesus Christ for good works. That God prepared before him, before the foundation of the world, that we would walk in them. In that verse, he actually explains what Christians are. That God takes us, grace gifts us with all this stuff, puts his spirit within us, forgives us of our sins. And then he takes us and he places us where he wants us to do his work in this world. And as we are faithful to obey him, we accomplish the works of God. And we find the people of God and we bring them into the family by evangelism, by telling others about Jesus Christ. And we help one another by edifying and encouraging one another, completing each other to be ready to do the work of God. And that's what we are as Christians. And as soon as he was done saying that, he dives into the church and he begins to explain what the church is. He's telling this to the Ephesian believers so that they know their purpose. They know God's will for their life on earth. And we are reading this in the same capacity, still being part of the church, even though it's 2,000 years later. The church is still here. 
The church is still doing this work, and this directly applies to our lives if we are Christians. You know your purpose. You don't have to go read the purpose-driven life. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. Two words describes the whole purpose of the church. Now those two words you can expand on and talk about what that means and write a whole book about it. But we have one purpose on this earth, and it is to find God's children and bring them into his family and to uh, edify them, complete them, equip them, sanctify one another so that we are more like him and are doing his work on this earth. It's to do, to do God's work. And so we talked about last week, he said that um, we who used to be dead in our sins, who were cut off because of our sins, and also all of us in here, I believe, there's some new people in here that I don't know you, so I don't know your heritage, but if you're not Jewish, 100% Jewish, on top of the fact that you're a sinner and that you, you're cut out of the kingdom of God because of your sin, you're also Jewish, not part of the Israelite people, not part of the Mosaic Covenant. It's almost, almost like a, a double whammy. You're a Gentile and a sinner, and you are outside of God's kingdom, outside of God's people at the time. And he was saying that, uh, that we who are Gentiles in the flesh, and he starts talking about what we are. We're separated from Christ. We're excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Uh, we're strangers. We're not part of the covenants of promise that God gave to Israel, the covenants, uh, and, and that we have no hope and we're godless in this world. That's the state of us being Gentiles and being sinners. But again, we had this big, but God did something. Now in Jesus Christ, he says, those who were far off, far away from all these promises, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, those who were separated are now brought together with him. And both groups, both Jews and Gentiles, no matter what your heritage, no matter if you descended from Abraham or you were part of all the other nations, we are now all being brought to God through the blood of Jesus Christ into one body, one entity, one thing, united together in one spirit, and this is called the church. God uses this thing called the church to bring all of his children into one body of believers. Uh, and then he started talking about what the church is, that we are God's household, um, that we are the family of God, that we are fellow citizens with the Jews now, that we are both citizens of God's kingdom, uh, whether you're Jew or Gentile, um, and that we are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament telling us what this church is and what it means to be saved. Uh, and that we are being built together as a holy temple in the Lord because his spirit dwells within us. And all those children of God that have God's spirit are part of the temple of God. Um, and, uh, and we are the dwelling of God in the spirit. There's some amazing stuff there. And we covered all of that last week. And that's what the church is. And we talked about it at the beginning of last week. You know, when we say the church in our vernacular, in our day and age, in this culture, most people think of a building. They think of this, this actual structure that we as people are sitting in. But what the church is biblically is the people. But not all the people in the, in the structure, just the people in the structure are just the people that have the Spirit of God with them, that have the Spirit of God in their hearts, that have been forgiven of their sins, that are part of this thing we call the New Covenant. We talked about what the New Covenant is, that God swore He would forgive His people of their sins. God swore that He would put His Spirit within them. God swore that He would write His Word on their hearts, and that eventually when He fulfills and completes the New Covenant, that all of them would know him to the point that you don't have to tell your neighbor about him, that we would fully love him, fully follow him, fully obey him perfectly, never worshiping other gods, never sinning again. This is what the new covenant says. And you and I, if we are in the church, have tasted this new covenant. We are partakers of this covenant promise God made with Israel and Judah, that we have our, the forgiveness of sins and the spirit of God within us. 
and we have the Holy Spirit within us as a seal, as a, as a, as a down payment for the promises and the, the, uh, the things that God has sworn to do, to get rid of sin completely, to make us love him all the time, to obey him fully, to do that work within us that we are made like him, both spiritually and physically, to live forever, eternal life. So all that being said, that is what the church is. And we are partakers of a new covenant because of the grace and mercy of God. He has taken us who are far away and bringing us in and grafting us into his kingdom, as Paul says in Romans. So tonight, we're going to look more at what this church is and more about the, uh, the entity of the church and the understanding of the church. Paul decided it was worth diving into again. He's, it's funny because he starts off Ephesians 3 by, uh, he almost prays. It's like, He's like, it's like it'd be when here and I'm talking about the church, talking about the church. And I'm like, all right, all right, let's pray. So, and then all of a sudden I just start bursting out about the church again. And then we put the prayer off for 40 minutes and then we get to the prayer eventually. That's basically what Paul's going to do here. After telling him all this stuff last week about what it means to be part of the church, Paul's going to start praying and then he's going to stop praying and start talking about the church again. So we're going to look at more of what the church is tonight to gain a better understanding of what it means to be a child of God and what it means uh, to exist in this life as a child of God. So look at Ephesians 3, and we're just going to look at 1 through 7 tonight. Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. Paul says, For this reason, speaking of everything we just said about the church, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, all right? And then he pauses. You, got, you might have a little dash in your Bible. Do you see that? That means he's going to, He's digressing into a whole different thought here. He says, If indeed you had heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote beforehand in brief, basically like a few sentences ago, uh, by referring to this, when you read, you can, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, here's the definition of the mystery, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. All right? What we're going to look at tonight is the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church. We've already talked about a mystery earlier in Ephesians, and there's other things that, that uh, God talks about in mystery form. Do you remember, when, last time we talked about the mystery, where was it? It was in uh, Ephesians 1. What was it? What was it? Uh, I didn't write my notes. I remember talking about this with you guys. Um, when Paul talks about mystery, what do you think about when you think about mystery? Oh, there it is, in, in Ephesians 1.9. He lavished on us uh, in all wisdom the insight uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And we talked about this last time. We said mystery, most of the time we think of mystery, we think of like an unsolved crime. You know what I mean? You've got to figure out all the, the evidence and figure out the mystery. But the idea here in the Greek is, is a little different. It's more of like what we call a secret, okay? The idea is that some people know and some people are part of this mystery, but others are outside of it. It would be like if I knew something and I told Hunter and, and Tim and Reeves, but no one else, all right? It's a mystery to you guys, right? But there's some that know the mystery. They're partakers of this mystery. And that's kind of the idea here tonight. And so we're going to talk about this mystery of the church and what the church is. So Paul starts out, actually, like I said, by, uh, by introducing this prayer. Go to the next slide real quick. We're going to talk about the ministry of Paul real quick. And the first thing that Paul does 
is uh, as we see this prayer of Paul. I think that's the next slide. Yeah, a prayer of Paul. He begins Ephesians 3.1 uh, uh, saying a prayer. And he's already said one prayer about these Ephesians, hoping they have an understanding of the word of God and stuff like that. And here he begins to pray again. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And now if you look over in Ephesians 3.14, that's where the prayer picks back up. All right, so if you read Ephesians 3, 1 and then 14, it actually reads together, and that would be the prayer. It would be like this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory. And he begins to say all these things that he wants God to bless them with. But after he begins this prayer, he digresses into this church thing again. But there's something we can get out of this prayer. First and foremost, Paul's praying this prayer because of everything we just talked about. The Jews and Gentiles are now brought together in one body, the church. And Paul begins to pray this prayer uh, for these Gentile believers, these Ephesians, to understand the depths of God's glory in this thing we call the church. Not to take it for granted, not just to be like, oh yeah, that's what I do on Sunday, but to to, to be overwhelmed by the power and the grace of God in what he is doing through the church and then to do it, get into action, take action because of this overwhelming, majestic thing that you are a part of and do God's work. The second thing we're going to look at is this, the person of Paul. As he prays, he says, um, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles in regards to what we just talked about. I think this is a good place to dive into a, and get a little reminder of who Paul is. When we started the letter of Ephesians, we talked about Paul. We talked about where he wrote this letter, why he was writing the letter, and all of that. And here is, is a, a sentence that's telling us context. It's telling us where Paul is, what he's doing, and when this letter was written. Does anybody remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? I mean, it's been like months now. Yeah, <laughs> slammer. House arrest. It's, yeah, that's a better description. He is in jail. Where is he in jail at? In Rome. He's in jail in Rome. And this is not his final. He actually dies in Rome after being in jail, but not this time. This is the first time he's in jail in Rome. Somewhere between 60 and 62 AD is when he wrote this letter after he was imprisoned in Rome. And we actually have the whole account of of this imprisonment and why he was imprisoned in Acts. So it's funny because if you read this verse in 3.1, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. There's two things that we can learn about the person of Paul here. First thing, he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying here is that not that Jesus has him imprisoned, but that he is imprisoned because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cause of, of Paul's imprisonment. It wasn't that he was a Christian, he went and stole stuff. It wasn't that he was a Christian, he committed perjury or something like that. He is in jail simply because he was proclaiming Jesus Christ. That was what he was doing, and that is why he is in jail. Um, I told you that this was written uh, from somewhere between 60 to 62 AD while he is imprisoned in Rome. He was released five years later um, after this imprisonment. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, he was released very shortly after this letter was written. And he was uh, imprisoned five years later again, and he was killed the second time he was imprisoned in Rome. All right, but this is the first time. And we know from Acts 28, 16, and 30, uh, Acts 28, verses 16, and verses 30 and 31 we actually have an account of where Paul is during this time. So if you flip over there, you can... Actually, we're going to be in Acts a lot tonight. So if you want to flip over to Acts, we're going to be following Paul for a little bit to give you some understanding of what he's talking about here. But if you look at the very, very, very end of Acts, Acts 28, verse 16, it says, When 
when he entered or when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Okay, so that's basically his imprisonment. He's he gets to stay by himself. He's not in a jail cell full of people, and he has a personal guard. So, like Reeves said, this is kind of like house arrest. And then verse 30, it says, He stayed there for two full years in his own rented quarters. So again, he's renting a place, but he still has a guard. He's able to have, um, and actually, let me just keep reading. Uh, and he was um, welcoming all who came to him. So that means people were able to come and to see him. He's able to sit down and converse with them. In fact, large groups of people come to see Paul during this time. But it's not like he's free. You know, he can't just leave and go back to Jerusalem. Verse 31, he says, And he was preaching the kingdom of God. And, um, well, uh, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So we also get something out of that, that Rome is not keeping him from preaching. Rome is not persecuting him. Paul is able to say whatever he wants to whomever he wants. They can all come and see him. They visit him. There's different accounts in Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon of different people being there with Paul and Paul sending them out and telling other people about stuff. In fact, this letter here, was sent by a guy named Tychicus who visited Paul in prison in Rome. Paul gave him the letter, and he went off to, off to Ephesus to give them this letter so they could hear what Paul had to say and be encouraged by Paul's words. So that's kind of where Paul is. And going back to the verse we just read, he says, I am a prisoner, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, the second thing we get out of this is Paul is the preacher to the Gentiles. And the fact that he is preaching to the Gentiles and the fact that he is telling them about the church, and he is saying that Gentiles and Jews are now brought together in one body called the church, that right there is the reason for his imprisonment. He's preaching Jesus Christ, but more, uh, more precisely, he's preaching that through the blood of Jesus Christ, people from other nations outside of Israel are now becoming members of the kingdom of God, fellow heirs of the kingdom of God, children of God, and are being grafted into the kingdom that Israel felt like they were only, the only people that were partakers of that. And so because of that, because of the jealousy of the Jews and the hatred of the Jews towards both Jesus and Gentiles and Paul, Paul is now in prison in Rome writing this letter. So these Ephesians probably would have been upset. I mean, it's partly their fault he's in prison in Rome. In fact, if you go back and read in Acts one of, the, one of the last things that happened before Paul was taken into custody, actually before Paul was almost killed by the Jews and, and taken into custody, is they saw another guy from Ephesus with Paul. And they thought Paul was taking Gentiles into the temple, into the Jewish part of the temple. And it, it infuriated the Jews. And so they went after Paul to kill him. All right? So literally, Paul is in prison because of Jesus Christ and because of the Gentiles. And the Ephesians could be at this place where they're upset. They're sad. I mean, it's our fault. We shouldn't have sent, I can't remember his name. We shouldn't have sent that guy with Paul. He probably wouldn't be in prison. And Paul's saying, no, listen, he's going to get to a point soon where he's going to be like, my imprisonment is, is awesome. It's for your benefit and the glory of God. So don't worry about my imprisonment. But he starts off this prayer by saying, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons is because I am a preacher to the Gentiles. A real quick recap of Romans, or I'm sorry, Acts 21 through 28. Here's the steps leading up to Paul's imprisonment. First thing, the unbelieving Jewish leaders in Jerusalem found uh, Paul's message about Gentile believers offensive, uh, and they tried to kill Paul. Paul was rescued by a Roman commander named Claudius Lysias, and then he goes to trial before the Sanhedrin, and they go nuts. I mean, they just start a riot, and, he, and Claudius Lysias saves him again from that crazy setting where they want to rip his head off again. 
um, and he puts him in prison. Uh, it's kind of like house arrest again because he's a Roman citizen. The Jewish leaders then plot to kill Paul. So they, they're, they go to Claudius Lysias, and they're like, hey, can we have another trial? We'll calm down. Sorry about that. And they're like, just bring Paul back. But they're plotting. On the way there, they're going to kill him before he even gets to the, the, um, to the courtroom. So finding out about that, Claudius Lysias sends Paul by this armed guard to Caesarea, which is over by the coast on the Mediterranean Sea. He's in Caesarea for two years under house arrest. I mean, he's free, but he's not free. And the Jews plot again to kill Paul. After there's a new king, they're like, hey, bring Paul back. We want to have this trial. It's totally cool. And they're going to kill him on the way again. All right. So Paul appeals to Caesar. He says, no, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. Send me to Rome. I'll I'll go to the, the high court. So they send him to Rome. All right, and he's in Rome under house arrest waiting for this trial before Caesar himself, and that's where we are in this story. Uh, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he writes the letter to the Ephesians shortly before his release. Obviously, they found out that they looked at him, and they were like, this guy doesn't deserve to be in prison. We're not going to kill him. Release him, and he's free for five more years until he's imprisoned again. All right? So that's what's going on here. Paul is a prisoner of Christ and a preacher to the Gentiles. Now, look at the next verse. Paul says, uh, um, uh, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in verse 2 he says this, Now if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, um, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Now I'm going to take this little part because this tells us a little more about Paul and, and, and kind of expand on it so you can wrap your mind around the context, Okay. First thing, he says that, that God uh, uh, has given him this stewardship. By God's grace, God has freely grace gifted him the stewardship of basically making known the mystery of the church to these people. Now, when he says this word stewardship, it's the same word we used back uh, in Ephesians 1.10. It means administration or it means a plan. Basically, he's saying here that God has grace gifted him uh, this plan of the church to share this with Gentile believers so they understand what God's doing at this time. Now, you and I come 2,000 years later. Uh, we turn that air down a little bit? When we think about the church, we know, in a sense, what the church is doing and what it means. Now, we have misconceptions because we think it's a building. But back in the day when Paul was writing this, they would be beginning to understand this thing called the church. It was a new thing. It wasn't understood well, and, 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 and it would be hard for people to grasp. And actually, if you look in the book of Acts, you see the disciples, Jewish believers, and Gentile believers struggling with this concept called the church because it's brand new. There was no such thing as the church before Acts 2. There was no such thing as the church in the Old Testament. And even when Jesus talked about the church, the disciples had a hard time understanding what he meant because it didn't exist. Does that make sense? So think about having no idea what the church is and you're trying to grasp it. That's what Acts presents. Look at, look at Acts 8. Look at Acts 8. From Acts 1 all the way up to Acts 7, everything regarding the church occurred in Jerusalem. Everything was in Jerusalem. The church did not extend outside the walls of that city. And everybody that was part of the church, and there were a few thousand at this point, were all people from Jerusalem or people that were in Jerusalem when things happened. Um, it was happening only to Jews. In Acts 8... Um, we see that Stephen is stoned and he is the first person of the church that is martyred by the Jewish people. He is stoned to death by the Jews who hated this idea of Jesus Christ and the church and, and all this stuff. And it says there that there's a guy named Saul who stood there approving of, stone, of Stephen's stoning 
and then becomes the leader of the first persecution against the church. Paul, who we're going to re- who's writing this letter, used to be known as Saul. He was the main leader of the most fierce persecution, uh, the first persecution against the church. Look at Acts 3, 1 through 3. It says Saul was in hearty agreement um, with putting him to death. Speaking of Stephen, it says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. I kind of think that's awesome that God threw that in there. So there's this massive persecution that starts. It's by the hands and the mind of Saul, and this is what gets the church out of Jerusalem. God used this persecution to spread the church to different nations. The only people that didn't leave were the apostles, and which is neat. Uh, I don't know if it's just because people were scared of them. Uh, it does say that, that people feared John and Peter. Uh, because of the power that they showed and the things they were doing. But nobody bothered the apostles. Look at verse 2. This says some devout men buried Stephen. They made a loud lamentation of they mourned over him. Then verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church um, and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and was putting them in prison. We find out later so that they can be tried for blasphemy and killed. That's the idea behind it. So Saul's now seeking them out. He's not just waiting for them to proclaim Christ and being like blasphemy. He's going into their houses pulling them out into the streets, taking them to prison for the hopes that they can start killing off all these Christians and stop this church thing, okay? So what does God do? God decides to save his church by saving the number one enemy of the church, the guy that is persecuting and trying to kill his people. He saves his greatest enemy and uses his greatest enemy as his commander-in-chief to begin building the church and plundering the house of his enemy, Satan. That's just the coolest plan I've ever seen. God is awesome, all right? So on Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, or I'm sorry, Acts 9, Paul goes heading off to Damascus with a letter signed by the priests saying, you can go to another country now, I mean another city, the city of Damascus, and you can begin going into houses there, pulling the Christians out, bring them back here to Jerusalem, and we'll try them, okay? So Paul is now extending the persecution outside the walls of Jerusalem, and God's like, enough. You're going to be on my side. So God intervenes. God shows up in this great light. Paul's blinded. Paul finds out that God is Jesus and Jesus is God and that he is persecuting the very God he says he serves by um, persecuting the church. So in Acts 9, 15 and 16, God actually describes why Paul has been drafted and brought into his army, you could say it that way, or uh, the purpose of Paul. And here's what God himself says about Paul. Uh, it says, the, the Lord said to Ananias, so he tells this guy Ananias, go find Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. God chose him purposefully to be a tool to use. And he says, his, his purpose is to bear my name before the Gentiles. Paul was chosen by God. His great, God's biggest like physical enemy, I guess you could say at the time, was taken by God and used as an instrument to go to the people of other nations and to tell them about Jesus Christ and to bring them into his church, into his kingdom. Um, and it says, uh, and, and he says, I'll show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. This is the stewardship of God's grace for Paul. This is the plan for Paul's life. This is why God called Paul to be a light to the Gentiles, a, a, a person, the preacher of the Gentiles, to tell the Gentiles about the church of God. But the other apostles and prophets they were beginning to catch a glimpse of this mystery as well. If you go read Acts, Peter is the first of the disciples that we know of that, that kind of got caught a glimpse of the church getting outside of the walls of Jerusalem, outside of just the Jewish people. In Acts 10, 34 and 35, after Cornelius, who is a, a Gentile and his family are saved, Peter says, I most certainly understand now 
that God is not one who shows partiality, but in every nation, not just Israel, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That was mind-blowing for Peter. What? Now, if you go look at Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the new covenant was for the Jews. And the new covenant has began, begun, but it's not just Jewish people that are being saved. It's not just Jewish people that are having their sins forgiven and having God's spirit within them. People outside of the Jews, Gentiles. Gentiles just means people from other nations, not Israelites, are being saved. And Peter says this. Peter then comes and reports to the church in Jerusalem that God is bringing Gentiles into this new covenant. In Acts 11, 1, and Acts 11, 17 through 18, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren, and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that Gentiles had received the word of God. This is crazy to them. And Peter said to these people, Therefore, if God gave to the Gentiles the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I uh, that I could stand in the way of God? Um, he says, When the Jews heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. That what I'm reading these verses for is to get you to understand and start wrapping your mind around the fact that this, was, this took time for people to grasp. This was a mystery. It was not known by people, and it was new. And even the disciples were like, what? Wait, what? But they saw God doing this. They saw these people being filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were like, I guess God's grafting Gentiles into the new covenant. And they're believing, but it's not just instant. They all knew. And it's like, oh, yeah, the church. <laughs> that began a couple of days ago, and we're all part of that. I mean, this was like, wait, what? Oh, that too? Them too? Wait, what? Paul's doing this, and Barnabas is doing this? The next thing is in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas go out on this first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit calls Paul, says Paul is going to go out and do the work that I have called him to do in Acts 13, 2 and 4. And then they begin doing the work. They go to Gentile cities, not Jewish people, not Israelites, people that are, are, are citizens of Rome and other countries. And these people begin believing in Jesus Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, having their sins forgiven. In Pisidian Antioch, in Acts 13, 46 to 48, it says Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said that we are turning to the Gentiles for the Lord has commanded us that I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul knew his calling. Paul was not ignorant of this calling. Remember, he saw Jesus Christ himself. He was blinded by the light and he heard God's word. You are an instrument of mine to go to the Gentiles and to bring salvation to other nations. And that is what Paul is saying here to these people in Pisidian Antioch. This is why I am here. If you look in Acts 14, 27, when he returns to the city of Antioch, another place, it says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they began reporting all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Over and over, this whole Gentile thing is just like, what, 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 what? And they're wrapping their mind around it. Then James, the brother of Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, actually, I jumped ahead. Then they have this council of Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem begins to start having some, some problems with this Gentile thing. They're like, okay, we accept the Gentiles are grafted into, into the kingdom. That's, that's great. But they still need to obey the Mosaic law. They still need to act like Israelites because we're God's people. And, and Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter all come up and say, no, no. The whole Mosaic thing, that's over. These people are being grafted into the church, and we are being grafted into the church. And we are now being saved through a new body, a new entity, the church, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So they do not have to become part of the law, part of the Israelites. Israel, 
Israel and the Gentiles are always distinct groups, and those two distinct groups are being brought into the church as one body. Uh, in Acts 15, 8 through 13, Peter says, God, who knows the heart, testified to them, talking about the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit. And then if you keep reading in verse 9, he says, God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. But we believe that we are saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way that they are saved. Also, the people kept silent. The Jewish people, they kept hearing this, and they were like, they were just silent because it's mind-blowing. They were listening to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas were relating the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And that brought great joy to all the brethren. But do you see, again, everybody's learning it. James is getting it. Peter's getting it. Paul and Barnabas are getting it. And they're telling people, and other people are getting it. People are being brought into this mystery. But it wasn't just automatically known. People are learning, the, the book of Acts is describing the mystery of the church being unfolded at its beginning stages. You and I come 2,000 years later, and we take it for granted that this was an, uh, a plan of God, that it was miraculous. In, uh, uh, in um, Acts 15, 16 through 18, James actually quotes the Old Testament, saying this stuff was in the Old Testament. We just didn't get it. We read it, but we didn't get it. In Amos 9, 11 through 12, God talks about the fact that the Gentiles who are called uh, will be called by his name. Other nations will be called Christian or will be called by God's name. Uh, and it says that the Lord made these things known from long ago. And then later, one of the biggest chunks that tells us about this church thing is in Acts 22, 3 through 21. Here Paul is on trial. He's already been taken into custody. He's on his way to Rome, and he's on trial now before the Jewish council. This is the first time he's on trial at the Sanhedrin. And he begins to talk about what he's doing. And he describes in detail who he is, where he came from, and what he is doing and why he is doing it. Listen to these words. Follow along in your Bible if you got it. <coughs> Acts 22, 3-21. He says, I, Paul, am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, Jerusalem, under, educated under Gamaliel, the, one of the, the, the smartest Pharisees that ever existed, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today, speaking to the Jews. And he said in verse 4, I persecuted the way, uh, speak, that's the, the church, those who believe in Jesus, to the death. I persecuted them to the death. I wasn't satisfied with imprisonment. I wanted to kill them all. He says, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Also, the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. And he said, listen, you know this. You knew me. I used to go to school with you and you and you. You were there with me when we stoned Stephen. And you guys signed the paper that said I could go bring people back here and kill them all. You know me, and you know me well. And I, was, I studied on Gamaliel. And he says, I'm the Pharisee of all Pharisees, Paul says. He says, um, let's see, from them I also received letters to the brethren. And I started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus around noon a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell on the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, well, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go to Damascus. And there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. 
all that has been appointed for you to do. You're going to learn your mission. You're going to know why I've called you. Uh, he said, uh, verse 11, But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came to Damascus. A certain Ananias, all right, who we just uh, heard about earlier, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, he came to me, standing near to me, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up and, uh, at him, and he said, now listen what Ananias says. He's going to describe in detail this administration of, of the grace of God that God gave to Paul. He said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, all right, to understand this mystery that we don't know in a sense, and to see the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him, for Christ, to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling upon his name. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. It keeps going, actually. Uh, if you look at verse 21, he sums it up and he says, I, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So here's the calling of Paul. Jesus Christ intervenes, finds his greatest enemy that is trying to wipe out his church. And he calls him personally and says, You are my instrument. Go. Go to the Gentiles, other nations, to the ends of the earth, and tell them all about me. It is through my blood that all men are saved, by my, by my grace that I bestow upon my children through faith in what I have done, that all men are saved, both Jew and Gentile. And I am bringing them together in one body, and this is called the church. And all those who are part of the church will have my spirit within them, and I will forgive them of their sins, and they will be mine forever. And I will deliver them from Satan and I will bring them into my family and into my kingdom and they will all be citizens of one kingdom, members of one family by one spirit serving one God and I am the means of their salvation. Now go. And so Paul here is describing who he is. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's been preaching Christ and that's why he's in prison. And he's specifically in prison because he is preaching that Gentiles are saved in the same way that Jews are saved. And God is saving them into one body. And there is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. No more distinction between the two groups. It doesn't mean they cease to become Israelites or they cease to become Roman citizens. But it means that both Israelites and Gentiles are now grafted into one kingdom, one family, one household of God called the church. And this is a new thing. And this was mind-blowing at the time. So... Uh, if you keep reading Acts, he, he talks more and more about it, um, but we, we got to keep moving. Uh, so anyway, uh, Paul's in, pr- in prison in Rome now because of these things. And the kind of sum up of this whole thing is this, that Paul is in prison for the very thing that he is explaining to us right now in Ephesians 3, or Ephesians 2 and 3. These words that you are reading are the very thing that cost Paul his freedom and made him go to prison and, and had the Jews, his former brethren, trying to murder him multiple times. This was big news. This was big stuff. This was earth-shattering stuff that we take for granted. But this is still mind-blowing, what God is doing and why he's doing it and how he is doing it through this thing we call the church. That the nations, the Gentiles, the people that were not Israel, who were, like we just learned, separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of God's kingdom Israel, outside of the covenants of promise that God swore to keep, hopeless and godless in this world, those people... Now, these people, the Gentiles, are being grafted into the kingdom of God. 
the family of God, the church of God, and they are inheriting the riches of the new covenant, the new covenant that God swore to do to his people Israel. Uh, And the church is being built, I'm sorry, and there is no distinction in the church between Jew and Gentile. And the church is now being built on Jesus Christ and on these very words that are being communicated by his apostles, Paul, Peter, John, all those people, and the New Testament prophets that are proclaiming that the blood of Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of our sins and that the new covenant has been ratified and is in effect right now and that anyone that believes in Jesus Christ and has faith that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is forgiven of their sins, has the Spirit of God placed within them and are sealed and, and held by his hands, never to be taken from him again. So repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And that is basically why Paul is in prison, because he is telling people that. But from there, he begins to explain more and more and more about this mystery, this mystery of the church. And we're not going to dive into the mystery tonight because it would be crazy to try. But the thing I want you to get tonight is this, was, this has not existed forever. If you are a Christian, what you are part of is, is a very special, special thing. That God held uh, basically... To himself, or kept to himself, not allowing it to be known until Acts 2, until the ascension of Jesus Christ, when he begins to send his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of people. So if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, you have to understand what you are, how special that is, and what you need to do at this point. It's the same thing that God called Paul to, in a sense. If you are a Christian, what that means is you believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind that apart from his death on the cross and his blood being spilled and him taking the wrath of God on the cross that day, there, there is no hope for mankind. We can never be saved from our sins. It's never by works. If you read your Bible, that's the, the last thing. I mean, it's the furthest thing from the truth. Salvation is by grace alone. It's a free gift given to us by God. Through faith, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the one, the promised seed from Genesis 3.15, the Messiah predicted from Uh, ages in the past, the one that would come and would take the wrath of God for our sins. And on the cross, he paid for our sins. And on the cross, he was struck by his Father with the wrath of God, the hell that we deserve, so that we could have his righteousness, his holiness, his gift of salvation. So that when God looks at those who believe in his Son, he sees a perfectly blameless, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous child of God. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, that is the grace gift given to us. And if we believe, we are forgiven. And if we believe, he puts his spirit within us. And he gives us his spirit to equip us, to enable us, to give us power and to give us understanding of his word and his will so that by his power and by his grace, we then go, like he told Paul, go. Don't just stand around. Don't just talk about the fact you're a Christian. Go and do the work. And the work is to take that gospel to all nations, to tell everyone that God puts around you and everyone you come in contact with that Jesus Christ is Lord, that apart from him, we are dead in sin. We are hopeless and helpless. We are without God in this world and we are destined for hell, like we said. But God, by his great mercy, love, and grace, sent his son to die for our sins. That is the purpose of every Christian on this earth. And then when it comes to other believers, to edify one another, to equip one another, to complete each other so that we're always ready, we're always willing, we're always strengthened to go out and to do this work. That's why we do this. The whole purpose of Wednesday Night Youth Group 
There, it's, it's for you guys and me and these leaders to be equipped and completed and edified and sanctified that through the renewing of your mind tonight, you become more like Jesus Christ and you walk out these doors and you do the work of God or you do the work of God right inside this building. Remember, this building is not some sanctified place where there's only believers. There's many people sitting here tonight that do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you do know him, then your calling tonight, your purpose and your plan tonight is to tell those people about Christ. Love them. Remind them of what they are. Remind them of what God has done. This is why we exist. If you think about it, the church makes no sense apart from it's God's will. If God wanted just to save us, if that was the whole purpose for you not to go to hell, he can do that on his own, right? He can just not let you go to hell, not let you go to hell, not let you go to hell, not let you go to hell. But that's not the whole purpose and plan. God could do that. He's sovereign, he's powerful, and he could. But what he does is he puts his spirit within you and he transforms your mind and equips you with his power to then go and tell him. And as you tell him, you not only save him and sanctify him, uh, but God uses you to do that. God saves and sanctifies him, but he uses your life to do that. Your words to give, your words of his word to give to him, and he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And then he goes, and she becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And you go to him, and he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And the four of you go, and they become a believer in Jesus Christ. And God is using this thing called the church to find all of his people. Jeremiah 16, 16 says that he will send people out to hunt for his people. He will send out fishers to fish for men. When he came and found the apostles, that's what he told them, right? Matthew, follow me, be a fisher of men. Or no, I'm sorry, he did that to Peter and Andrew and James and John. Be a fisher of men. Stop fishing for fish and go out and find my people. Fish for them and bring them into my kingdom. That is still the call for every Christian today. So, that is what the church is. Don't take it for granted. If you're not part of the church, tonight you are here for this purpose. If you don't know Jesus Christ, God brought you here by his grace and mercy so that you would hear these words and you would repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved and have his spirit put within you so that you will know him and follow him and do the work of his good will on this earth. There's no other reason for you to be here. God wants you to repent. God wants you to be his child and that is why you're here. God desires for no one no one to be separated from him. And that's why he sent his son. So, if you don't know him, repent and believe and follow Jesus Christ. Salvation is a free gift given to us by God through what he did on the cross. And if you do know him, edify me, edify your neighbor, encourage one another, complete each other, and then go and do the work of God in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your uh, word. We thank you, God, that you explain so completely and so precisely what the church is and how you save people in this day and age. And in 2015, we are still in the church age. We're still in this time period where you are saving people by means of the church. And God, we know this time will end. And we know the church will be taken. And we know there's a time in the future that church will not exist on this earth, but people will still be saved by your plan and by your ways and your will. And we know one day the church will return with Christ. And that we, along with all other believers, whether they are Israelites, whether they came before Abraham, whether they were saved during the tribulation, during the millennial kingdom, or during this day and age through the church, all of your people will be gathered to your kingdom. And all of your children will be with you forever. And sin will be done away, and we will have bodies that never die. And we will always be with you. And we will have no remembrance of sin. There will be no more trace of sin. You will make all things new. And we'll exist with you forever, inheriting the earth, being with you, 
forever. God, we pray that that would happen and that you would come soon, that you would send your son Jesus Christ to return to make all things new. But for the time being, as we exist on this planet in this day and age where sin is still present and where the church still exists, we pray, God, that you would help us to be faithful and diligent, to not be lazy, to not be distracted, to not be deceived into thinking that there's any other reason that we exist and help us to follow you, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, to do your plan, your will, your ways on this earth, to sanctify one another, whether it be submitting to our parents, whether it be sanctifying our spouses, whether it be working hard at our jobs, in whatever way that everything in our life reflects you and becomes a proclamation and a testimony to other people about the greatness of our God and the mercy of our Savior and the grace gift that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us not to squander anything in this life. And apart from you, Lord, we can do none of this. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And we pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.